0: We're going to be continuing in our series on Acts this morning, and we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 9, which is on page 975 of the Bibles that are found on the seat in front of you, if you want to turn there. Um, so we're going to be reading verses 20 to 31 today. I'm actually going to start half a verse earlier. All right. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who, were co- who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Galilee, all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. My name's Kevin. I have the great privilege this morning of uh, taking this uh, passage of scripture that Megan's just read for us and trying to impress on our hearts what the Spirit of God would have for us today. Uh, before I do that, I want to add my condolences to uh, the families that are mourning the losses um, this past week, and uh, I'll take responsibility for Jeff's error in uh, the days there of the week. I am the one who typed that in incorrectly, so just to... Uh, reaffirm that uh, Tina Froese's visitation will be happening here at the Orchard Campus on Tuesday from 4 to 7, and then the uh, Celebration of Life service will be happening on Wednesday at 11 a.m. here at the Orchard Campus, and the final details for Betty Dick's uh, arrangements will be worked out, I think, this afternoon, but it looks like um, it will be on Thursday the visitation and then Friday uh, the funeral service and both of those will be at the town campus in Virgil because seasons is happening here and set up. It's all happening for that. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So last week. Uh, Pastor Matt led us in the first part of chapter 9 in the book of Acts as we were reintroduced to this uh, character Saul of Tarsus. We first met Saul of Tarsus in uh in the account of Stephen one of the deacons of the church and who was stoned after uh, debating with the hellenistic Jews the greek speaking Jews in Jerusalem and was debating with them about the message and the way of Jesus and uh, enraged they they took up stones and let him out of the city and they stoned him to death and Saul of Tarsus was there and approved of that and was actually like helping you know some of the people who were throwing the stones like He was basically carrying their coats for them so that they would... They were more loose and ready to to throw those stones. And so uh, we were were kind of foreshadowed, like, who is this Saul of Tarsus? Well, Saul of Tarsus took the persecution of followers of Jesus to a whole new level. He was, um, as he would self-describe, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was uh, passionate about his faith uh, as a a Jew. He studied under the famed Pharisee Gamaliel. He was... um, He was blameless uh, according to the law of the Pharisee party, the religious rulers of the day. And so he was like rising up the hierarchy of uh, Judaism of the day, and he then took and was breathing threats against uh, the followers of Jesus and was going house to house and taking them and seizing them and putting them in prison and even putting Christians to death. And he was like not content just to do that in Jerusalem. He wanted to spread that hatred. He wanted to squelch this movement. We'll talk a little bit later about why he was so opposed to it. Uh, but he, w- he got letters from the chief priests to be able to go to synagogues in other cities. And he was on his way to the uh, capital of Syria, Damascus, and was going to uh, go to the synagogues there and arrest all those who would follow Jesus and uh, And bring them back to Jerusalem, but Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. He strikes him with a bright light from heaven, he appears to him he, Paul, Paul sees the risen Christ, he hears the voice from heaven, who says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And Saul is uh, transformed; he has this vision of Jesus risen from the dead and is transformed. He's brought to Damascus. He's blind. He's been blinded by that light. And Jesus speaks to, by the Spirit, speaks to a man named Ananias there, who is to go to meet Saul and to explain the way of Jesus and to welcome him into the church of Jesus. And uh, and so Ananias does that, and Ananias baptizes Saul in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is baptized into the church immediately. And so now we find Saul living a new life, and that's what... um, we want to talk about today is some of the amazing changes that happen in Saul the persecutor. Saul, the, the man who was going about breathing threats against followers of the way of Jesus uh, and imprisoning and putting to death uh, followers of Jesus, now living as a disciple, as an apprentice of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about three of the amazing changes that we see in this passage uh, happening in Saul. And so Saul, while his conversion is extraordinary and exceptional in many ways, it, there are things about it that are going to be true about you and I if we would come to follow Jesus and be followers of the way of Jesus. Saul, we need to answer that question that Saul asks on Damascus Road. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Who is Jesus. What's, who is Jesus? What's he all about? Um, we need to our our conversion, our testimony, our confession of faith in Jesus should be evidenced by a new obedience towards him, and so begins by being baptized, being incorporated into the church, and so again, baptism. We saw that uh, earlier in um, in chapter eight of the uh, conversion of the Ethiopian official. The, the eunuch from Ethiopia, who was immediately baptized. Baptism is kind of this first step. If you trust in Jesus, if, you've, if you surrender your life to him, give your heart to Jesus, the first step of obedience is to be baptized uh, in his name. And so that's what we're doing in a couple of weeks, December 22nd. Again, put a plug in there. Uh, it's not for those who are super mature, it's like baptism is the initiation into a life of following Jesus. And so we'd love to journey with you towards that. He, um, he begins by praying and fasting and begins now to partner in ministry. And so I want to notice, first of all, that the persecutor is now proclaiming. The persecutor of Christians, of of the of followers of Jesus, is now proclaiming Jesus. You probably caught that in a, a couple of points here throughout this uh, the the passage that Megan read. That he uh, verse twenty two, he grew stronger, kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Earlier was verse twenty, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He's the Son of God. Verse twenty eight. He was coming and going with them in, that's disciples in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus. He, the, 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 the man who was going about persecuting is now proclaiming the very message that he once persecuted. You might say, well, how much time, uh, elapsed between this? Well, the, the time between, uh, Saul on the Damascus Road and uh, verse uh, 20 where he immediately begins proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Uh, conservatively, maybe 10 days have, have passed between him getting letters to go to the chief priests and now him immediately beginning to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. Between verse 22 and verse 23, 23 says after many days had passed, that's three years. We know that from Galatians chapter 1 that he spent three years alone in Arabia studying uh, the Old Testament again in light of Jesus. And and so there was some time that passed. And then um, at the end of this passage where they take him down to Caesarea, send him off to Tarsus, like there's a period of... Uh, well, he was in, in Jerusalem for 14 days. Again, we know that from Galatians chapter 1. He spent most of those days with Peter. And then he went down to Caesarea and off to to Tarsus. And that was a period of about 10 or 11 years, probably. Um, but again, immediately, he becomes a proclaimer Of the gospel, he becomes a teller of the good news. He becomes an evangelist, a gossiper of Jesus. He tells everyone about Jesus. So, what caused this great change in Paul the Pharisee to become Paul the Apostle? What what caused? So, I'm going to use the word Saul, the name Saul and Paul. I apologize. Same guy. Okay, he later becomes known as Paul. but most of this passage, he is well. In this passage, he's called Saul still. So, I'll try to call him Saul, but it's also Paul. So, what changed? How did he How did he become this persecutor to now a a preacher? Well, he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. That that's what changed he became convinced that Jesus really and truly rose from the dead. We know that from his later writings, that the, the great apologetic for him, that is, which means the great reason for believing in Jesus, is that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the very bedrock Of our faith. And the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament and to the Apostle Paul is never presented as this kind of moral of the story, spiritual new beginnings, kind of, it's a earth shattering, paradigm shattering, impossible to ignore fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That he was dead on Friday, but Sunday morning, he's walking out of the grave. And he's eating meals, and he's he's walking around and conversing and and, uh, touching and, and speaking with and meeting with his disciples. That the fact of Jesus' resurrection is the very bedrock of the transformation, is the very cause of the transformation that takes part in Paul. Now, our culture, we don't really like facts so much. We're more into, you know, likes and dislikes, right? All social media accounts have various sorts have some sort of way of saying, I like that or I don't like that. And we tend to believe more readily people we like than people we don't like. You'll learn, it's proven fact, if, as a teacher, if you're a school teacher, if your students like you and enjoy you and you have a good rapport, they're going to learn more from you because they're going to trust you more and they're going to receive from you more. And we all tend to believe more readily those people that we like. And so we're really into likes and dislikes. And as, um, I'm not sure about you, but as some, a lot of my friends who aren't followers of Jesus as I talk to them about Jesus, often it comes down to, well, you know, like, I don't really like what the Bible says about money, or I don't really like what the Bible says about the sexual ethics, or uh, I don't really, you know, it's not really appealing to me. I don't really like I don't like it. And so, I'm, a, I'm kind of, like the Bible is offensive, right? The, the, I don't really... I, I find it offensive that uh, followers of Jesus would claim that the only way to heaven or the only way to be in relationship with God is through faith in Jesus. I find that offensive, That what it means for those who don't believe in Jesus. And so there's all kinds of things about the gospel of Jesus or the good news of Jesus and the message of Jesus that are offensive to me that I don't like. And... What I want to encourage us as representatives of Jesus to do, and if maybe that—if you're window shopping Christianity a bit today, maybe kicking the tires on Jesus—and and, and you are like, "Yeah, that's kind of me. Um, I'm not sure if I can take it all, or I don't, I don't. I, I struggle with what Jesus says about sex, or I, I struggle with what Jesus says about money." What I would would encourage us to think about is, well. Because you don't like what Jesus teaches about this, does it mean that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead? Because you don't like what Jesus says about sex, does that mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And what, So what I, what I, what's important, I think, is like set aside the, the, the ethical teaching of the Bible. Set aside the idea of, is Jesus the only way or not, for a moment, and just deal with this fact. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Because if he did, if Jesus was dead and now is alive, you're going to have to deal with all that other stuff. Right? Like it or not, you're going to have to deal with that. But if he didn't, if he's still dead, who cares what Jesus says about any of that? Just ignore him. Just move on with your life. But the very bedrock of our faith is that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead. That That's what transformed the Apostle Paul, is he became convinced that Jesus was alive. And and therefore, what was offensive to him before, he now had to deal with what he liked and didn't like. And really, in a way, submit to Jesus, because someone who is dead for three days and now is talking to me, I'm going to listen to what they have to say. Now, Paul, I want to point out, though, was more offended by Jesus than you and I were. Unless, every eye closed, every head bowed, any of you killed people for believing in Jesus. Any murderers in the house today, right? Paul was killing people. He was more offended by Jesus than any of us ever were. And in a matter of ten days, he's now proclaiming Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. You see, Paul was offended by the gospel because um, it claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah is this is, the, is a word that um, we always think, "Oh, that's Jesus." Well, yes, but the Messiah was this figure in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that the Jews had received from God. That was this coming Savior King who was going to defeat all of Israel's enemies, who was going to liberate and rule and reign over Israel. He was going to be of the line of David. He was going to sit on David's throne forever. He was this coming King. A mighty one. A one blessed by God. It means anointed one, literally. It means anointed one. And so the Messiah... Was always going to be someone who is very blessed by God, who's, who's, who God is pleased with, who has, who's received God's favor and God has raised up and who's going to defeat all of our enemies. But this Jesus, he was crucified. This, he received this horrible end. How could Jesus be blessed by God? Doesn't Deuteronomy say, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree? This Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. Our Messiah will be strong. Our Messiah will be victorious. Our Messiah will lead us to victory. But this Jesus was obviously cursed by God. Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And so this block of people who are now teaching that Jesus is the Messiah, they've got to be squelched. They've got to be put out. We've got to put an end to this because we're still waiting for our Messiah. Disciples of Jesus felt the same way. On the road to Emmaus, um, after in between or or shortly after Jesus' resurrection, you read about it in Luke chapter 24. There's two of Jesus' disciples, his followers, are walking from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus, and um, Jesus actually joins them, but they don't recognize him yet. Their eyes are kind of blinded to the fact of who Jesus is at that point, and they're talking, and one of them says, "You know, haven't you heard about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man approved by God? He was doing all these miracles, and..." We had thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel, but he was crucified. Which is kind of funny now, right? We thought he was going to be the Savior, but he died on a cross. And we're like, yeah, he's the Savior because he died on the cross for our sins, right? But the followers of Jesus at the time, and, and Saul the Pharisee are thinking, There's no way he could be the Messiah. There's no way he's the Savior. He's cursed by God. He's received the end. He's, he's like, he's in utter shame. But, unless he's risen from the dead. And so the Apostle Paul sees Jesus, meets the risen Jesus, Becomes convinced that Jesus is risen from the dead, and I read somewhere, and I I can't take credit for this because I didn't. Um, these aren't my own thoughts, but I didn't. Um, I can't find where I, where I read them in the past. I think it was Don Carson, uh, D. A. Carson, who wrote this, but maybe it wasn't. But he imagines well. What was Paul thinking about for those three days where he was blind and he's, he's met Jesus. What's going through his head? What's, what are the, what are the wrestlings? What are the thoughts and reflections that, that he's thinking? Well, he's thinking, well, if Jesus is risen from the dead, that means that God was pleased with him. That means that God did vindicate him. That means that he, his message is something to pay attention to. And so if God was pleased with him, if he did have God's favor, if he was vindicated by God when he died on the cross and was under the curse of God, he wasn't under the curse of God for his own sins. So whose sins was he under the curse of God for? And then Paul begins to think about the temple and the sacrificial system, and he begins to think, hmm, do the blood of lambs, little lambs and goats and bulls, does that really make atonement for sin? Does that really deal with our sin, or did we need a human sacrifice for our sin, someone as a representative to stand in our place? And so maybe Jesus died not for his own sins, but he died for the sins of others. And maybe God did vindicate him. And then he goes, because as a Pharisee, he would have had the entire Hebrew Scriptures memorized. He thinks about Isaiah, and he thinks, well, the first half of Isaiah, the Messiah is pictured as this conquering king and this mighty one, the Holy One of Israel, the, this, the strong one. But in the second half, there's this mysterious suffering servant. We talked about him two weeks ago, as Philip preached from Isaiah 53. And he thinks about Ezekiel and Jeremiah and he thinks about the New Covenant where God was going to you know, speak to us like a friend and write his law in our hearts and so we aren't going to need a temple and a priest anymore. And he thinks about the promise to Abraham that through Abraham's descendant all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed and it all begins to make sense in light of Jesus' resurrection. You see, apart from Jesus' resurrection... Jesus is, is, a, is a loser. Jesus is someone to be looked down on, someone, someone to be shamed. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, oh, that changes everything. That changes everything. God is pleased with him. He is vindicated. You see, Saul and the Jewish people were expecting a strong Messiah to come and save the strong. They weren't expecting a Messiah who would come in weakness to save those who would admit their weakness. And so Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the preacher, Paul, the proclaimer, and he begins to proclaim Jesus. Because he saw Jesus risen from the dead. And everything then makes sense. As a church, we've wrestled with, you know, what are our corporate values? How do we, how do we make decisions? How do we, how do we, uh, what are some of the things that are really important to us as a, as a church? And our highest value, friends, is this. Our message is Jesus. That's our highest value. Is that our message is Jesus. We have no other answer. We have no other hope apart from Jesus crucified, dead, buried, risen, and ascended to heaven and returning. Jesus and His gospel is our only hope. It's our only message. It's the one tune we got. It's the only song we sing. We've got nothing else for you. But Jesus. And His, and Jesus, the message, the announcement of who He is and what He's done, That's a message that needs to get out there. It's unfortunate that there's a quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I don't think he actually said it. There's good reasons to think he didn't say it. Where it goes something like, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Um, That's that's it's unfortunate because it is necessary to use words. Right? Paul preached Jesus. He proclaimed Jesus. He spread the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. You say, oh, we want to just be an Acts church. Yeah, let's be an Acts church, an early kind of church, which means we preach Jesus, that our message is Jesus. You see, the book of Acts, you can't read this book without becoming convinced that the primary calling of the church is to get the good news out there with words. Yes, to live a life in line with the gospel. Yes, to be a good example. Yes, to follow the teachings of Jesus. And to get the good news out there with our words, the good news of grace. You see, it's all through the book of Acts. Chapter 1, Jesus says, verse 8, you are going to be my witnesses to these things. Chapter 2, Peter preaches on Pentecost. Chapter 3, Peter preaches in the temple. Chapter 4, Peter and John are under threat and told to stop preaching, and they say, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Chapter 5, the disciples are teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Chapter 6, as the apostles are uh, tempted to or uh, to become distracted, they say, "No, no, no! We must be devoted to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word." Chapter seven, dedicated to Stephen's sermon. Chapter eight says, "Those who were scattered went on their way and proclaimed the good news." Chapter nine, here, Paul preaches the good news. Get the drift? Chapter ten. Peter teaches Cornelius. Chapter eleven, the disciples are proclaiming the good news about Jesus out of Antioch. Chapter twelve, the word of God flourished and multiplied. Chapter thirteen, they proclaimed the word of God in Cyprus. Chapter fourteen, in Iconium, they spoke the word in such a way that many believed. Etc. 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 Preach the gospel at all times. Yes, because it's necessary. Let's use our words because. Friends, I'm all for us being a good example and having a life that, living a life of holiness and of good deeds, right? But if that's all the world sees is you being a good little boy or girl, what they're gonna do is get a message of, oh boy, I don't measure up. I couldn't live like that. Because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in us changing our hearts and changing our loves and changing our desires. No, they can't. And so our life if it's not accompanied by the message of grace, is only condemning to the world. Unless we get the good news about who Jesus is and that he's ready and willing to accept anyone, our good works only feel condemning, only feel like a mountain too high for us to climb. I couldn't, I couldn't be invited. I couldn't be welcomed in. I'm not good enough. I couldn't do that. But the good news is, is you don't have to. It's a message of grace, unmerited favor with God. Jesus has done it. So you don't have to do it. Jesus has done it. So as a church, we must, must, must be an Acts church. We must be a preaching church, a people who go about wherever we go, spreading good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's not only here. That's what I'm doing now kind of in a formal corporate setting. We're committed to the good news getting out there here, but then as we scatter all throughout the region to our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and soccer fields and hockey arenas and gardening clubs and retirement homes and wherever it is, we go about our day. We go with the good news on our lips. Because Jesus is risen from the dead and that changes everything and that means that it's all about Him. It means it's all about Him. And so our message is never, man, Cornerstone is such a great church. You should come here because our music is great and the messages are a little mediocre, but like the music is great and the people are friendly and it's a great building or our message is never like, We're a better church than that church. My goodness. Our message is not we're awesome. Our message is Jesus. Jesus is great. Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is is ready to save you. Jesus is ready to forgive you. Jesus will restore you to the Father. Jesus is going to show you love like you've never known. Jesus is going to erase all of your shame. Jesus is awesome. That's our message. Our message is never about us. Our message is Jesus. We proclaim Christ. Our message is Jesus. Paul says what we, in 2 Corinthians 4, I think, where he says, what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ. We preach Christ. Jesus is all we've got. He's the one song that we just keep saying over and over and over again. Is the gospel of grace. That's all we got for you. I don't have ten tips for a better life. I don't have three tips for a better marriage. I don't, I don't know how to fix your kid in two days, but what we have is Jesus. That's all we got. But Jesus can do all those things. He can do all those things. So be connected to Him. Be filled with His Spirit. That's all we got for you, though. Our message is Jesus. So the persecutor becomes the preacher. He becomes the proclaimer. I've got three minutes. The persecutor, secondly, is persecuted. The persecutor becomes persecuted. We've seen that, right? Two murderous plots... He goes right into the hornet's nest, right? He goes to the Hellenist, the Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem. Where does that ring a bell from? Oh, yeah, those are the guys that killed Stephen. That's the synagogue Saul belonged to. Those are his people. He went to his people. He went to his friends and said, Guys, you're not going to believe this, but Jesus is the Messiah. He really is. He rose from the dead. I met him. And here's why I know this. And he debates with them, and he is, is strong and mighty and convincing. And they're like, let's treat you like Stephen. We're going to kill you too. So there's two murderous plots, right? Out to get them. But Saul, he he becomes like a man without a home. They want to kill me in Damascus? They want to kill me in Jerusalem. And the disciples, they don't really want to take me in. Understandably, right? You were the one who imprisoned my mother, and now you want to come and have dinner with me? He's a man without a home. He's experienced great loss. Do you think he ever got afraid? We think of Paul. Paul hero i i'm just so encouraged ephesians chapter 6 he, he says guys would you please pray for me that i would proclaim the gospel fearlessly as i ought to i need i need prayer for that he says he was human this was hard for him these were his people that wanted to kill him his friends, his former friends who want to do him in but there's a man named Barnabas, right? But Barnabas. Barnabas is a great guy. We first meet him in, uh, I think it's chapter, chapter 5 or 6. I forget now. I forgot to write that down. But Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. One of my favorite preacher jokes is I get called son of a lot of things, but he's called son of encouragement. So good. Barnabas. He's an encourager. Encouragement is so powerful to come alongside someone and take them under your wing or say, you're doing a great job or yeah, you're the real deal and Barnabas vouches for Paul and says, guys, let's take him in. Let's welcome him. What's the worst that can happen? Barnabas is the encouragement. He's the encourager. He vouches for him. He says, guys, let's, let's... Let's forget his past. Let's let that part go. Let's welcome him in. Everyone's welcome here. Everyone's welcome here. So the persecutor is welcomed into the church. Anyone in your life who has a past you're not forgetting? You won't let go? Do you know someone in your life that's fanatically opposed to Jesus? Could be a spouse, could be a maybe one of your kids. Fanatically opposed to Jesus. Maybe a friend or someone you work with. And you're tempted to lose hope for them. Man, I don't know. They could only be a few days away from proclaiming Jesus. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Paul says in First Timothy, he says that his, his conversion was, was as an example for us. That, that no one's beyond hope. So don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would your word bear fruit in our hearts, in our lives. Would you give us assurance today? Lord, we need your assurance, Jesus, that you really are risen from the dead. That gives us great hope in the midst of loss, in the midst of the death of our loved ones. That gives us courage to go about proclaiming the good news about who Jesus is. Because Jesus, you really are. You And, and, and we see it. We see the evidence of it, that a man like Saul is just turned around because he met you. And the, the, the lives of Peter and the lives of others, Lord, as, we, as they meet you, risen from the dead, they're just totally transformed, and we want that to happen to us, too. So encourage us. You set us free from fear. And for those in our lives, Lord, who we feel are fanatically opposed to you, we, we pray that the Spirit of God, your Spirit, would invade their hearts and lives. Give us, Lord, loving actions and gracious words to continually just point them to you as as the source of all hope and truth. And so, Father, we pray that as we go about our week this week, that you would just give us that great privilege of scattering seeds of the gospel wherever we go, knowing that, Lord, you are going to cause some of them to grow in the hearts and lives of our friends and our families. So we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. In a few moments, we're going to respond to God's word with...